and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Emily Gow and I'm the Programme Officer at Cumberland Lodge. If you're unfamiliar with us, we are a charity based in Windsor Great Park and what we do is organise conferences, um, panel debates and retreats um, on, on societal and political issues. So we bring people together from different backgrounds um, to discuss um, sort of topical issues um, that affect everybody. Um, this is Dialogue and Debate, our webinar series, and we meet monthly at 11am on the first Wednesday um, of the month. Um, and we bring together panellists um, to discuss, um, again, topical issues um, that are arising in society um, and to pick out uh, themes that are emerging from our conferences um, and, our, and our other work. Um, and all the topics we discuss um, are centred around a social cohesion. So our last Dialogue and Debate took place um, in July, actually. We had, we had a month off in August. Um, and the, the webinar in July was um, on the topic of the future of religious buildings. Um, and we discussed the changing role of religious buildings um, in the UK in our increasingly multicultural and, and multi-faith society. Um, so if that's of interest to anyone, if you missed it, um, you can get the full recording on our website on the Read, Watch, Listen page, um, or you can access the audio recording um, on our podcast channel, which is available on Spotify and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, so do have a, have a look uh, on there. Um, today, our theme is the social impact of sport. Um, so we're going to be looking at inclusive sport and how um, inclusive sport can help tackle sort of social and uh, economic inequalities. Um, obviously, um, COVID-19 has kind of reinforced the fact that sport is so vital for our societies and people really do uh, sort of need it for, the, for their health and well-being. Um, but also it's not a sector without its challenges. So I think we're going to come into some good discussion um, today um, on this topic. Um, unfortunately, Cathy Long um, from Women in Sport is no longer able to join us today. Um, so she does send her apologies. Um, so we are with a panel of three, but I'm delighted to welcome three excellent um, panellists. Um, so we're, we're joined today um, by Mark Bullock, who is a coach for Paralympic and Disability Sport. Uh, Russ Jeffries, who is the head of communications at Parkrun. And Hamid um, Vakifian, who is the head of community engagement at London Marathon Events. I think wears fairly a number of a number of hats. Also, a trustee at the running charity and non-executive director at the Sport and Recreation Alliance. Um, so, thanks so much for being with us, um, all of you. Um, throughout the webinar, um, which will last about an hour, um, we're going to be asking um, our audience to, to submit questions. So, if you're watching uh, live on Zoom, you can do that by the Q and A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, or you can comment on our Facebook live stream as well. Um, so do submit questions as we go and we'll try to address as many as possible. And um, we'll also be live tweeting. So um, do share your views um, at Cumberland Lodge um, and use the hashtag dialogue and debate. Great. Um, so I'm going to start by bringing in all of our panellists um, and we'll start on quite a positive note. Um, I'm going to ask uh, the same question to, to each of you. Um, and my question is, what important social values have you learned through sport which have impacted positively on, on your interaction with communities outside the sporting world? So, um, Mark, let's start with you. Yeah, I think that's a, a, that was a massive question. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, through, uh, through, I've been involved in, in sport, I guess, for 30 years um, and have personally learned a lot of uh, sort of social values. Um, and I think 
sport doesn't operate in a silo. Um, and one of the things that I'm very passionate about is um, using sport and physical activity um, to impact on people's lives more widely. So um, I'm currently working, for example, with a, an athlete with a learning disability who's also been doing some, some fashion work with my wife. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. The two, the two worlds are coming together um, to support that particular person. So I think um, certainly, and I think COVID taught us this as well, one of the big social that things that we need to do is bring people together, um, which uh, ironically, uh, through this sort of platform, uh, through COVID, we were running mainly tennis because that's my background sessions online and bringing people from all over the world together. That wasn't our in initial intention, um, but that proved to be one of the most important factors. So, and, and when we first went online, for example, with the blind tennis, we didn't do any tennis initially. It was about bringing people together and creating sort of, I guess, some social cohesion virtually. <clears throat> Hopefully that's a... Yeah. answer it in a lot longer, but uh, yes. Great, thank you. And, and Hamid? Hi, Emily. Yeah, thanks um, for the question. Yeah, I think for me, um, not dissimilar to what Mark said, really, is, is for me sport has always been something that I've been passionate about and something that I've played throughout my life. So um, I think a big part of it is the exposure to people who are different to myself. So um, exposure to different cultures, people from different backgrounds and that camaraderie that can come out and then, you know, hold you in good stead for, you know, working life and, and general life really. So for me, a big part of it is that sense of community that sport can bring um, to you as a team, to the team ethic as well. So when you do work with people who are different from yourselves, you're able to kind of, um, you know, adapt to that to those situations. Um, I think as well, you know, respect and discipline are two other values that I would say are, you know, heavily linked to sport. Um, you know, there's, there's, I suppose, a huge amount of debate about whether that is actually true. I suppose in some contexts you could argue um, hugely <laughs> disrespectful um, things we've seen that sport can bring out of people as well. But I think for me personally, uh, that, that sense of something to um, set, set targets. So a big part of my role um, at London Marathon events is about how we inspire people to be more active. And um, one of the ways in which, for instance, my work through the running charity does that with homeless young people is actually by allowing them to set goals for themselves and using running as a tool to engage young people um, can be extremely powerful because if you set a, a target for a, a personal best, for example, you, and you achieve it, you realize your potential and you can kind of um, translate that into other areas of your life as well. So I think there's huge value that sport can bring in terms of uh, inspiring you to achieve, achieve what you want in life more generally. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and Russ. Thanks, Emily. Uh, just struggling to find the mute button. You think we'd be used to that by now after uh, 18 months of doing this. Um, yeah, look, I think Mark and Hamid have, um, have, have touched on certainly some of the things that I would mention as well. There's obvious ones like respect and, and teamwork um, that have already been touched upon. Also encouragement and being there for someone and just turning up, um, showing up. Um, I think if you... If I think about my engagement with, with sport, not necessarily through organised sport, but certainly um, it, how 
you know, you can support someone else, be that a friend or a, a family member or a colleague or whoever um, in their sporting journey or physical activity journey by simply saying, I'm going to commit to do this with you or to be there with you, or whether that be going to the gym or going for a run, going for a park run or, or whatever it might be. And I think building on that, there's just this sense that we have this innate um, need to belong for community. Um, and as Mark said, that's what's been missing, albeit we've had a kind of digital replacement for it over the last 18 months. But I think what the last 18 months has shown me is that um, we suffer without the ability to come together, ideally in person. And sport can provide that opportunity for people to come together as a community and to belong. And that can be through through participating in sport in the traditional sense of playing football or hockey or running or, or whatever it might be, but also watching sport, you know, being a fan on the on the touchline in the stands, it gives you that sense of community, that sense of belonging that's that's so important and so powerful. Um, so loads of things, and it means and it means different things to different people. But um, and, and I think Mark said it nicely that it, sport doesn't exist in a silo. You know, so much of what is is good about sport is good about society in general. But for me, the 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 power of belonging and that need for us to belong and come together um, is one of the most powerful things that sport can offer. Excellent, thank you. Um, totally agree, and some really good um, values that have come from um, all three of you there, which I'm sure we're going to go into in more detail. Um, so we've kind of established it's, sport is a really, really positive thing, um, but it's not completely inclusive, and there are still quite, quite a lot of inequalities. Um, so Hamid, I wonder if you could tell us about kind of your work in diversifying participation um, and sort of getting people from different backgrounds, um, particularly minority ethnic groups, um, uh, in, into L- the London Marathon. But you might have other examples. Yeah, sure. No problem. So uh, just to kind of provide a bit of context, really, um, I would rewind a few years to when London Marathon events, um, who I work for, who organise the London Marathon, amongst many other running events and cycling and swimming events as well in London, um, were looking to develop an idea for a new half marathon in London. Prior to that, they had been delivering um, the Silverstone Half Marathon. And this idea came up for an event which would truly represent London's diversity. And um, the event is called The Big Half, and it's now been going for about three or four years. Um, so I began kind of, uh, I was working for a different organization, working uh, for Sported, who are a sport for development organization. Um, and my background being in community engagement, built a partnership with London Marathon Events to support them to engage communities around the route to um, inspire them to take part in the event. What often happens with mass participation events is that you get um, the same people taking part year in, year out. And you often find that the people who, where the route passes by, the communities that the route passes through, are not necessarily engaged in it. They're, they may not even be aware of it. They may be aware of it from the fact that their road is going to be closed, but they're not inspired to take part for whatever reason. And I think that was a big driving force behind setting up this event was to make it truly, um, you know, talking about um, belonging, as Russ has done already, you know, actually them feeling like they belong and that they could be part of this event. So, you know, fast forward two years, um, I was uh, I was brought on board to kind of head up our community engagement work. And a huge part of the work that we had to do was to kind of um, build 
relationships and connections um, with communities across London, local authorities and community groups and organisations themselves. Um, so last year, um, despite the pandemic, we set up an inclusion advisory group made up from a whole range of uh, diverse running crews and um, community groups to help us to establish what it is that we need to do to achieve our goal of making that event and our other events within our portfolio much more inclusive and accessible to communities that are underrepresented. And that particularly focuses on ethnically diverse communities because, you know, if you look at running events um, across the board, you will find that they are predominantly white, predominantly middle-class um, uh, participants throughout. In terms of female participation, actually, we're doing quite well. Uh, most of our events are around 50-50 in terms of participation. Um, we had the Vitality Big Half only a couple of weeks ago, and the, you know, the, the female um, figures for that event was 56% female. So... We're doing really well in terms of female participation, but when it comes to ethnically diverse participation, actually, there's a huge, um, you know, a huge way to go. And part of the work that, that, that I'm involved in that and that we need to do is to build those partnerships at a grassroots level. So there's been, you know, since, um, since the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and everything that happened in America with George Floyd, we know that there's, um, there's, there's been a huge proliferation of kind of, diverse running crews that are predominantly focused on engaging the black community or ethnically diverse communities. And what I've been doing is engaging with them really regularly to understand how we can support them. Uh, one example of this more recently is that we uh, supported the delivery of an event called the Black Unity Bike Ride. So we host an annual event called Ride London, which engages about 70,000 cyclists um, on a hundred mile route normally. And uh, so we have huge expertise in terms of delivering uh, events on that scale and cycling events specifically. So we, we, I kind of started engaging with the organizing group uh, who were looking to set up this event for the second year running, but needed our support in terms of accessing um, permissions for the event to go ahead and liaising with stakeholders, the police and so on. Um, and, and this is a group of, you know, individuals who are just um, doing this voluntarily, wanting to engage the black community in cycling. And, you know, what became really apparent through that is th through supporting them by adding value to what they what they already do. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. What we need to do is we need to support them at, um, to be able to do what they want to do, but to do it at scale. Um, but what became really apparent was the level of bias that was around um, when it came to, you know, if, if you look at the processes and systems that currently exist, this group didn't particularly fit into the traditional mould of what, um, you know, local authorities were used to or TfL for that matter, Transport for London, that is, um, when it came to, you know, accessing the roads and so on. So where we would go in and say, you know, we would like to put on this event we would get a response straight away where the organizers of that event who are all black men and women were going out asking for, for, for the same level of support from these local authorities and so on. They were not getting a response at all. So that I think demonstrates a huge amount um, of bias uh, and, and something which 
we know exists in society that there are kind of barriers in place um, and systems and processes that aren't fit for purpose that prevent uh, things like this going ahead. And, and it's a, an amazing initiative and it, it did go ahead in the end um, and we supported them along the way um, and, and we got almost a thousand riders on the day taking part all from black and ethnically diverse backgrounds. And I think that's what we as an organization want to be doing more broadly beyond our existing portfolio of events is saying, what can we do to go out into communities at a local level and understand what their needs are, what they would like to do, and how can we add value to that by being um, an ally in that, in that sense and kind of um, you know, providing our expertise and facilitating things to happen um, on a larger scale. So, you know, across our events, um, we've been doing a huge amount of work to engage communities, both on the route, but also faith groups, um, community organizations, and a whole host of other, um, you know, like running crews or cycling groups that are already engaging the people that we want to take part in our events. And I think if you think about um, some of the barriers that exist, we've done a lot around that as well. So we've provided, for instance, a, a community entry to a lot of our events. And what that does is it essentially brings down the cost significantly. So we provide £10 entry for community organisations and groups that are already engaging ethnically diverse communities to say, we actually really want you to be part of our event. We know that cost is a barrier for some communities and we know that, especially in London, um, you know, Lower, lower socioeconomic um, communities over-index on uh, ethnically diverse communities. So we know that cost is a barrier for a lot of people, especially if you're a first-timer into an event like this. So therefore, we provide you know £10 entry fee for those, for those groups. And that has been really successful in terms of engaging those communities. Um, so I think there are a lot of things, a lot more that we can do, and we've got strategies and plans in place to do a lot more. But certainly some of the things that we've already started to do are showing that actually we're making um, some good progress in that regard and starting to see uh, the participation levels amongst those communities uh, much more prevalent in, in our events as well, which is great. Thanks, Hamid. Um, just in, out of interest, I'm, I'm just picking up on your point about cost. Um, in my mind, uh, running is one of the, kind of the most accessible um, sports. But how? What's kind of progress looking like in getting ethnically my, minority groups kind of involved in more hard to reach sports? I don't know if you've got a, a view on that. What do you mean by more hard to reach sports? I guess more expensive sports. Yeah, um, so cycling is a big one. I mean, cycling yeah. is a massive one because obviously, I mean, even though you think running is actually very easy and accessible, you still need a decent pair of trainers. You still need some running kits. So it still does cost money. Um, and, and not everyone feels safe running alone. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes we've got, for example, groups that run, you know, they hire a track out to run a group of Muslim women. And, um, you know, we've supported them with with access to that. So I think uh, in terms of cycling, which is a great example of an expensive sport, which requires equipment, um, I think we are finding that, you know, what we need to do is we need to support and work with organisations who can provide access to bikes at a low cost or, or free of charge or hire or, or support people to hire bikes to take part in our events. And that's what we're aiming for for next year's Ride London is, is to support people. There are, you know, initiatives out there like bike libraries, which essentially hire out bikes um, where we could potentially invest in that and that kind of thing. 
but yeah, you, what you will find is that actually cycling, especially amongst young people from ethnically diverse backgrounds, is a hugely popular sport. It's seen as cool. It's quite urban. It, it you know, with the, the BMX in the Olympics is a great example mm. of that. And I think you'll see, you know, you know, we work closely with Peck and BMX, for example, um, who produced um, Kai White, who's a silver medalist, and you know, through our um, London Marathon Charitable Trust, have funded a number of facilities around cycling as well. So I think um, despite it still being expensive, young people are getting into cycling quite a lot now and are inspired to take part in cycling. And, and there's a fantastic initiative, if anyone's ever seen it, um, called Bike Storms, which is set up by a, a guy. Uh, it's basically a movement, which is an anti-knife crime movement and trying to get young people um, away from knife crime and into cycling and and you know they do some amazing tricks and wheelies and all kinds of stuff on the streets of London and I think things like that are starting to kind of um, cut through and people are starting to see it and, and realize that actually it's something they can be a part of as well so yes that's still a significant barrier cost-wise and cycling has a huge way to go to get away from the kind of um, white middle-aged men in lycra for want of a better kind of phrase but yeah um you know taking part and it's only for them actually it, it can be much more accessible and that's where i think we've got to work quite closely with the groups that are on the ground already engaging those communities like the black unity bike ride to facilitate those kind of those those communities to take part in these events as well Great, thank, thanks, Samid. Some great examples there. Um, Mark, I've got a question for you now, um, and that is, um, what is the Paralympics doing for raising awareness um, and increasing participation in, in disabled sport? Um, yeah, thanks, Emily. No, well, I think obviously the Paralympics is taking place now, um, and I think uh, through the coverage that Channel 4 are doing, which is amazing, um, it's certainly raising the awareness of of. Paralympic and, and disability sport and the opportunities that are, that are out there for people. I think the, the challenge is to connect that increased level of awareness to activity and, op and opportunities on the ground at, at, at grassroots. And London 2012, um, which I was heavily involved in, um, took Paralympic sport to another level, particularly in this country. Uh, and, and the awareness, I don't think, is... is ever been higher and it increases each four-year cycle um, there are some challenges in that the Paralympic Games by definition are only every four years so that level of exposure at the moment in most sports is only coming every four years um, so uh, this morning I've been watching Boccia um, on, uh, on Channel 4 um, but <clears throat> I don't think I'll have the opportunity to watch Boccia again for some time and haven't seen it for a while. So it's a fantastic sport. Um, so it, the exposure's there and, and, and going back to not being in silos, programs like The Last Leg are, are raising awareness more, more, more broadly um, around disability. Uh, and so I think the, the real challenge is to connect that increased level of awareness to opportunities on the ground. So if someone, for example, is watching the power athletics does that then translate them to turning up and doing a park run on a on a on a saturday morning um and i know russ is on the call and park run is very inclusive and and, and that opportunity is available but perhaps in other sports it's not there so i think to answer the question the awareness is huge and they've never been higher um but i, I think 
and it's not just a, a disability sport question. It's how do we connect the high performance sport and the awareness and the TV coverage to, to grassroots participation. Um, and I saw a question come in about tennis, which is, is my sport um, and the perceptions of, of tennis as a sport um, as, as being exclusive. And there's some real challenges there. And I'm a member of the LTA's inclusion panel and there's a real awareness that a lot of work has to be done. Uh, but if you take an event like Wimbledon, where they have a wheelchair tennis event, uh, which I happen to be involved in, in helping to deliver, for the first time ever, we played a match on court one this year. Um, so in terms of providing exposure and awareness, it's fantastic. It's then how do we connect that to, to what's happening out in the communities? Okay, thank you. And on the note of communities, let, let's turn to Russ. Um, Russ, tell us a little bit about Parkrun, just in case people aren't familiar. Um, and, and then I, I'd like to know um, what the sort of the biggest challenge that, that Parkrun has has faced in terms of getting a diverse and, and, and sort of inclusive group of people involved. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Emily. Um, so so Parkrun is a UK-based charity um, that essentially delivers uh, physical activity uh, opportunities in over 2,000 locations currently around the world. Um, so what we do is we empower or inspire local communities to want to set up and continue to deliver uh, weekly five kilometre on Saturday or two kilometre junior events on Sunday um, community events so that people can for free turn up and walk, jog, run, volunteer at these events, find a community, find belonging like we talked about before um, and hopefully improve their, their own uh, physical and mental health and well-being, uh, and those of the, the community around them as well. Um, so we've been going for, uh, must be 17 years next month. Um, and as I said, currently in just over 2,000 locations around the world, slightly uh, hit by the pandemic uh, over the last 18 months, as, as everyone has been. Um, but we're almost uh, back uh, in, in everywhere around the world, still just a few remaining countries where we haven't quite reopened just yet. Um, I guess one of the one of the challenges the organisation has faced is is just how to grow sustainably. So, starting with one event, and it was never the intention of, of Paul Simpson Hewitt, the founder, back in two thousand and four, to create this global um, network of community events. It started off as he had a, a a desire, an idea, just to create an event for him and his friends. He was. Um, a really good uh, amateur runner, um, got injured, really suffered with that injury um, mentally, um, felt disconnected from his running club, um, felt like he didn't have a place where he belonged. Um, and so felt that, to cut a very long story short, which has been told a number of times in the past, but to cut that story short, he, he created this event so that really he could uh, bring his friends to him um, and have that social interaction once a week. Um, and, you know, some time later over, you know, it took a couple of years, but then the idea started to grow that actually this might be a second event and a third event and a fourth. And before long, it was, um, it was in um, all corners of the country and starting to go overseas as well. Um, but with that came the challenge of fundamentally, this needed to be free to access for anyone who wanted to. Um, but how do you create something that, um, that is free for anyone to participate in, 
um, in multiple locations around the world. Um, you know, that's if, if anyone was thinking about that now and, and trying to start from a, a position of creating 2000 events, that would, you know, you'd, 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 you'd give yourself a headache thinking about the logistics and the challenges that come with that and the cost. And so I think whether it be a, a, a focus on um, simple technology or um, the power of volunteering and, and how to really harness um, the power of volunteering and really understanding what that is. So moving away from this sense of volunteering being something that you do, you give up your time to help someone else. We passionately believe that volunteering is something really positive that you can do for yourself um, and that a byproduct of that is that you also then help your community as well. But fundamentally, first and foremost, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing to do for yourself. Um, it's not an inferior form of participation. It's not a sacrifice. So how do we really harness that um, to then allow the organization to grow? What are the challenges when we start in different countries? How, what are the, how does the, the model, if you like, need to flex, whether we're talking about events in, uh, you know, the Siberian winter where it's, you know, minus 30 degrees or the Australian summer where it's, you know, 40 degrees. Um, what, what are the things that we that need to adapt and change? But fundamentally, how do we scale something? And so a, a, a laser focus on simplicity, removing as many barriers as possible, not only for um, traditional participation, so those that want to walk, jog or run, but also for those delivering the events as well. How can we continue to remove those barriers so that it's as simple as possible, but that essentially it's the same. So no matter where you participate in the world, you're getting the same experience and, and the same benefits. Um, do you think COVID has has affected participation at all? I've got a question here from Jonathan Skinner saying, post-COVID, would there be a surge in sport? Obviously, Parkrun's been cancelled for, for quite a, a long period of time. It's now back up and running. But how do you think COVID has affected participation long term? I think it, it, it so it definitely has. Um, so typically, where we've restarted since the pandemic, we're seeing a slight reduction in terms of participation numbers that we would have seen for this time of year previously. Um, it's a little bit hard to measure because we're, take Australia, for example, in New Zealand, we've been back and then closed and then part back and part closed. And so it's, we're yet, we're looking at it quite closely, but we haven't really got a full picture. And in the, in the UK, we've only been back, um, well, in England, we've only been back probably six weeks now um, and only more recently back across Scotland and uh, Wales, a little bit longer in Northern Ireland. Uh, but the trend seems to be that participation numbers are down and are concern would be that for all of the good work that not just Parkrun, but that um, the whole sector has done in breaking down barriers to participation for those that really have the most to gain potentially from access to physical activity. It's those people that are probably uh, less likely to have come back. And it feels like maybe this is going to set us back a number of years. Um, and, and, and I think as much as the pandemic highlighted the inequalities across society. So the health inequalities that exist across society, particularly in the UK, but, but everywhere. Um, so it's also exacerbated that problem. It's made it worse for sure. Um, and I think as a sector, we've got an awful lot of work to do um, to get back to even where we were 18 months ago, where we were starting to increase participation numbers across those harder to reach um, or more vulnerable communities. And I think, unfortunately, a consequence of the pandemic is that um, 
you know, for people that were physically active before and have been able to remain physically active throughout the pandemic, that's great. You know, I think they will, you know, that they will be able to come back in the numbers that we saw previously. But for others who are unable, um, who have been impacted um, from a, a bit health or economic perspective um, or any other number of different reasons, um, it's going to set us back. I have to agree with that, um, Ross. I just think um, from our experience with our events coming back over the last couple of months, um, there has been, yeah, a lot of hesitancy for, from people signing up for uh, events. And I think there's a lot of that is down to the the kind of um, yeah inequalities that have been, that, that have shown up throughout the pandemic. And we're starting to see that there are, um, you know, the people who are confident, who, who have always been running, are going to carry on running. Um, but as you say, those those who are much less likely or, or less inclined to kind of sign up for an event previously are now even more hesitant because of large crowds or, or kind of, you know, um, their own health um, perhaps deteriorating throughout the pandemic itself. So, so yeah, I think it is going to be a real struggle to, I don't think we're going to see a massive surge to answer the question. I think, I think it's going to be a struggle to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, that's something that we've all got to kind of address and look how we, how we support those communities who are less engaged um, and, uh, and, and suffering as a result to, to, to re-engage. Mm. Yeah. And, Emily, just to, I, I would broad, broadly agree um, but I think uh, in some of the work that I've done at more at a micro level, we have had some success stories through COVID. Um, and it wasn't, we went online um, early in the pandemic to service existing, in my case, tennis players. But as we went through the 18 months, we were able to reach people who um, probably wouldn't be considering sport. And there's a few success stories where we, we, we did a session not so long ago for Dystonia UK, and we had 30, 30 or 40 people attend an online session, got to know us a bit better, and therefore are more confident to come back because they've engaged with us online. Um, so I think it's like, but yeah, I think there's a, my sense is there's a surge in, in awareness that physical activity is perhaps good for people, but there's a nervousness about coming back. Mm. Um, so in some of the work that I do with the blind and partially sighted, they're not too worried about the tennis per se. It's traveling on the tube, for example. So it's that wider um, impact as well that as sports providers, we can perhaps do as much as we can. But again, we're, we're not operating in a silo and, and, and people have got to feel confident moving around, mm. traveling, etc. cetera. Mm. Thank, thank you. Um, on the topic of um, kind of getting people back into sport, um, I'm wondering what, what the role of role models is uh, in that. And with the Olympics and the Paralympics going on, um, kind of how, how important are having these like diverse role models um, and, and how can we make sure that, that um, we continue to build um, and get the exposure for different people doing different sports that sort of might not fit those, those usual kind of stereotypical boxes? Yeah, I'm happy to go on that one. Uh, I, th I think role models are very, very important. Um, and I think one, one of the, the, the messaging that I'm liking coming out of the current Olympics and Paralympics, it's, it's not all about winning medals. So it's not just, there's exposure going to athletes who are not winning medals and they're still being perceived to role models. So I think that's a positive development. 
um, rather than the only role models being uh, gold medalists. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they've an important part to, to play and, and something that we've learned over the last 18 months in particular through some work that I do for an organisation called Panathlon is those sports that don't have role models. So, for example, the Deaf Olympics is much lower profile than the, the Paralympics. So uh, deaf young people don't have role models in the same way that perhaps physically disabled people do now. And that became quite interesting when we were, again, going back to working online, doing online sessions with with, uh, deaf role models for deaf children. We had a lot of success. So I think role models do play an important role, but it's, um, it's not... It's role models in a wider sense, so not just the medalists. It, it's people that have achieved at every level. And uh, um, to, to, to Russ's point, you know, so, some of those role models are the volunteers who are working the games, etc. It's not. It's not just about the athletes. Um, and there's a uh, single leg amputee, um, line umpiring and chair umpiring at the Paralympic tennis event at the moment. And and that story is being told and creating a role model in a, in a different way, that it's not just about participating in the sport and winning medals. I'd have to say from our perspective as well, um, you know, elite, elite runners, for example, un, I wouldn't class them necessarily as role models because, you know, if you look at the likes of Mo Farrow, takes part in a lot of our events, actually doesn't resonate with a lot of the, you know, the black community in London. They didn't necessarily look up to him and say, I want to be like Mo Farah or young people aren't growing up saying, I want to be the next Mo Farah necessarily. Some are obviously that are in, in the system, but you know, if you, if you look more broadly, what we, what we're trying to do is actually uplift and showcase those community role models who are just, you know, individuals who've taken up running, who are quite inspirational. They've got their own personal stories as to what running has done for them. And I think that, more you know those sort of more realistic um and achievable kind of uh, role models or stories are something which resonate a lot more with people rather than kind of your your elite athletes um who you know to, to majority of us is going to be completely unattainable so i think i think what we're trying to do through our community engagement and our kind of uh, marketing communications and the content that we put out there is actually highlighting these amazing human interest stories that are um you know really gonna gonna showcase people from specific communities and and people can relate to them and 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 kind of you know hopefully be inspired to engage in physical activity as a result completely agree with that Hamid I think that's hits the nail on the head I think for me that you know there's that question isn't there about do Olympic Games be it London or Beijing or Rio or Tokyo do they do they deliver on a legacy of um, increasing participation? And I'm just not, I'm not sure they do, but I'm not sure we can expect them to either. I, I, I just think exactly right, Hamid. I think that some of the stories that come out of the Olympics and Paralympics are incredible stories of, of human endeavour, of perseverance, of, of, of whatever it might be. And, and as Mark said, not necessarily the stories of winning gold. And I think that's been incredible to see, actually, the, the focus that we've given other athletes who who have fallen short in the kind of traditional sense, but still winners. Um, that's been that's been refreshing, certainly this summer. But does it inspire participation? I don't think so. I think it for some people who are probably already physically active, um, or or who perhaps were physically active and perhaps don't face the barriers that others do. 
then maybe the Olympics or the Paralympics is a is a reminder, um, is a is a gives them a, a a kind of a platform or a reason to kind of go out and explore those opportunities again. But our interaction with something like that is so fleeting. You know, it's it's a few weeks every four years or so. And I know we're not just talking about the Olympics or Paralympics here, but 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 typically the 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 attention that is afforded to something like the Olympics or Paralympics is 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 so fleeting that it can't be. Um, it's not the panacea. It's it's not the thing that's going to make the difference. I think there's it's far more nuanced. Um, Done that, and to Hamid's point, you know, and, and and I've got a bias here because communications is 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 my specific role within the organisation, but that's where I think communications has got such a important role to play. Um, be it London Marathon events, be it park run, be it whatever, we've got an opportunity to provide a platform to um, allow others to tell their story in a way that allows underrepresented uh, individuals or communities to identify or to um, to see themselves or people like them reflected um, in the events and with the sports that we deliver. Um, and I think that's what we've got to do. And, 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 and exactly right, that can be an amazing story of a volunteer making a difference for themselves and for their community um, or just um, making it more obvious um, that there are people like you who are participating in, in those sorts of events. So, you know, it isn't necessarily what you thought it might be or, um, you know, what the traditional notion of um, of sports or physical activity might be. Um, I think that's where communications has a, has a massive role to play. Um, that's really where we can make the difference. Great. Great. Thanks, Russ. Um, we've got a few audience questions coming in, so I'm aware that we, we should get to those as well. Um, so this is a question from Angelica. Um, and it is, with competitive sport often come rivalries that also provide meaningful group identity for different communities. I'd be interested in the panel's experience with healthy rivalries and how best to avoid rivalry shifting from friendly sportsmanship to more destructive group dynamics. So I don't know if anyone wants to, to take that question from Angelica. Um, very happy to. Uh, it's a great question um, and, and, and something that in, in my sort of 30 years invo involved in the Paralympic movement in particular, something I feel quite um, strongly about. And I'm now um, working a lot as a coach again and something I talk to a lot about with, with the people that I'm working with is, is that how do we create that environment where <clears throat> we have healthy rivalries and it doesn't tip it over into no, cheating, essentially, of um, antidote, you know, doping offences, et cetera. So, um, and I think that messaging is starting to come out, as we said earlier, from, from the Olympics and Paralympics. This time, the, the emphasis has gone away a little bit from winning at all costs. And the only thing that's important is winning a medal. Of course, I'm competitive. I like to win, um, but hopefully not at all costs. Um, so I think it's a really interesting dynamic. And I'm presuming so much for us with Park Run. Uh, I, I meet some friends of mine who know all their park run times and etc and others who just turn up and run and have no idea how quickly they did it um so i think it's getting that balance right mm -hmm. and it's a challenge um and it, and it comes back to that communications of, of, of what we put out that's that's important um certainly in my coaching role but the first question i always ask an athlete is how did you perform how did you get on and rather than saying did you win or lose mm -hmm. Um, and, and early doors really trying to 
focus on the performance and the process rather than the, than than the outcome. But it, it it is a challenge and a challenge that sport and society faces. I think because I don't again we're not a silo. These things are happening in business as well as to how we define success in business um, as well as in sport. Mm. Thanks, Mark. Um, your comment about winning at all costs, that made me um, go back to another audience question on mental health as well um, and sort of the pressure to be the best, to, to fit that kind of ideal um, athlete image. Um, does anyone have any comments on, on that question? So the perception of mental health changing in, in relation to sport and that, that sort of pressure that, that's, that people, people maybe put on themselves or on other people. But I think it was incredible to see at the Olympics, you know, Simone Biles um, raised awareness of that issue like, like I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, and that's a good thing. But still there are sections of the media, perhaps, uh, perhaps one infamous former uh, ITV breakfast presenter who, who, who kind of questions that. And, and I guess that's maybe for kind of populist reasons. But, but I think we do... Um, we do need to ask ourselves questions about how much pressure we put on athletes and how much um, pressure athletes put on themselves um, and, and the, the, the kind of the dangers that come with that. Um, you know, it's not, um, you, you don't necessarily define yourself by winning or losing. You know, I think for, you think about the Olympics, the only one person can, can win at a race or at a sport, only one team can win. And, um, I've got uh, twin daughters uh, who are five and they're just, you know, starting to get involved in, in sport and, and physical activity and, and organized sport and that sort of thing. And, and I'm so conscious that, you know, they, they are participating in activities where, um, you know, they won't necessarily win, and, uh, but they instinctively feel like they've failed if they don't win, even though we're trying to give them reassurance around it's, it's totally fine. You can't expect to, it's not, that's not what it's about. It's about taking part and enjoying it. And, um, and, you know, you'll find something that you, you do enjoy and there's, there's so much more to get out of it than just winning. Um, but there's work to do around that because I think we, whether there's a, there's human intuition in there or whether that's something that we, um, we amplify, unfortunately, through the, rhetoric that we use through the media um through you know our following of professional sport organized sport whatever it is um those are some of the, the ultimately some of the barriers you know and i see it with with one of my daughters um she's she's not the fastest in her class she doesn't win the races um and so instinctively she doesn't want to participate so she's turned off from it at such a young age and i think what well, what are we doing there as a society where we're switching off, you know, the majority of people potentially from enjoying physical activity, if we deem that your only enjoyment that you can get from physical activity um, is through winning. Of course it's not, but but though that's a, a huge issue that we need to address. Absolutely. I would say as well that, you know, we need to provide more psych psychologically safe environments for people to have the conversation about mental health and to kind of open up about the challenges and the pressures that they face, whether that be at, as, at an elite level or, or you know, at a grassroots level. Um, otherwise, as Ross says, you know, you, we are going to find a lot of people, um, you know, losing the passion for the sport that they 
started out loving, you know, as a child or whatever, they started getting into sport and physical activity. It was for the love and passion they had for that particular sport. And the more pressure and, and, and kind of um, inability for them to address any mental health issues that they have through, through the kind of environment that they've been placed into, um, you know, that, the, the, the more likely they are to be turned off by it um, later down the line. So I think I think it's hugely important that we we provide spaces for people to be able to have that conversation. Mm. Um, Alison's asked a question here, um, and that is, do any of the panellists have any experience of using a buddy system to help new members of sports groups to integrate into existing clubs or activities? So the new member goes to the group with a trained buddy or volunteer for the first week or two as they sort of as a way of introduction or reducing mental barriers to participation. Um, Mark, do you, do you have any comments on that on that one? Yeah, we, we use it a, a lot um, where we introduce a new player to an existing player. And it's, it, I wouldn't say we had, it wouldn't, it's not formalised, but it's a technique that we use a lot to make sure that people feel welcome. So they'll come, sometimes they'll come, it happens naturally, they'll come with a friend or someone will approach us and we will we'll put them in contact with someone to say, well, and this is someone who will take you under their wing um, for a few weeks. And often those relationships carry on. Um, and I think perhaps in the past they've, they've happened naturally. Now we have to make them happen, um, perhaps because if we're not living in communities in the same way that we were, um, <clears throat> but something that's worked quite a lot, and also in, in the coaching space, I think we talk we talk a lot, quite a lot about athletes. But just go back to the last point. Certainly, in in coach coaches tend to be measured on how successful their athletes are, mm-hmm. so that then puts pressure on the coaches to to move in a certain direction. Um, and we're trying to change that space. So I'm now one one of the coaches that I've taken under my wing. I suppose is is a, a special Olympics gold medalist. Um, who's starting out on her coaching journey um, and we're not looking to produce the next set of visually impaired tennis champions we are we are running a community session uh, in Islington thank you um, I've got another question here from Wen Wen um, and that is nowadays many people are anxious about their look and their body figure body shaming is also a common phenomenon um, do you think we can avoid criticizing those who don't do sports and should they feel guilty for not engaging We've obviously spoken about all the positive things about people who are involved in sport, but what about those who who are, who are not engaging at all? Um, Hamid, maybe maybe this one. Yeah, um, I think you know um, it's a huge issue, um, and and body shaming is something that you know happens across all sports. I would say um, at various degrees. So, I think in terms of what can be done about it, or or you know, one of the biggest challenges for women participating in running is about is about exactly that is about their how how they perceive themselves and their body confidence. And I think um, you know, women in sport do a huge amount of great work on that. Um, we I, in my previous role, we we ran a program for um, teenage girls um, in partnership with women in sport and trying to really address those issues around. Um, body confidence and 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 kind of how um, women and girls perceive themselves in those environments, and I think it's about th- there's a huge role to play um, for the media in this as well. I think it's about how 
um, you know, what, what does sporty look like? What does the, the fitness industry look like? All of those kinds of questions. I think we need to, we need to address the kind of image of, of, of what, what, that traditional stereotype is. And I think if you look at some of the stuff um, that Sport England have done with this girl can campaign has been really successful in addressing that and, you know, kind of um, showing women of all shapes and sizes taking part in different physical activities. And I think we all need to kind of sing from that same hymn sheet of it doesn't matter, you know, how you look or, or what, you know, what size you are or, you know, how athletic your physique is. It's about actually just taking part in something and doing something that will benefit your physical and mental health at the end of the day. So I think, you know, across all of our events, we have, you know, if you look at the London Marathon, there are people that run it in two hours. There are people that run it in eight hours. And I think that's the beauty of it is there are all people from all walks of life, all different shapes and sizes that some way or another are going to make it to the finish line. And, and I think we need to kind of all make sure that we are, um, you know, when we talk about these events and in our comms and everything, we need to be as inclusive as possible to all people and make sure that there, if, if there is any kind of uh, shaming that takes place at events, that it's, that it's um, you know, nipped in the bud and that, that it kind of is addressed there and then, really. Mm. No tolerance. Yeah. To, to, to take another question there, actually, then then for us, maybe, um, do you think we should change the current messaging around physical activity to focus on fun and friendship rather than health and fitness? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I, we absolutely need to challenge those stereotypes, um, to, to Hamid's point. And I think that's, that's on all of us. Um, that's on the sector. That's on the media. That's on us as a society. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that Paul, uh, the founder of Park Run, was so passionate about creating a clothing brand, Contra, which um, which really um, uh, it, it kind of flips on its head that notion of what we or what an industry deems to be sporty or, or, or what physical physically active looks like. There are just so many barriers that come with that. You know, that for for too long, people who don't fit a certain um, size or shape um, wouldn't even be able to find uh, clothing that that fits in order for them to take part in physical activity. Um, you know, there'd be a, a, a shame attached to the their weight or their size or their shape. Um, you know, and, and 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 even entering a um, a sports retailer um, would be a, a significant barrier to to too many people. Um, and absolutely, language is important to that to that question. You know, Emily, I think we do need to be very careful about the language that we use when we talk about sport and physical activity. It's one of the reasons that we never refer to parkrun events as a race. It's not a race. Yes, it's timed, um, but it's whatever you want it to be. You can you can run with the dog on a short lead. You can run pushing a pram. Um, in most places, this is you know you can you can walk, you can jog. Um, it really finishing time really doesn't matter and in fact one of the things we're most proud of as an organization is that on average every year since uh, 2004 the average finish time at park run has got slower <laughs> which which sounds kind of um uh counterintuitive like why would we be celebrating but but actually that's the whole point it means that we're encouraging participation from people who um aren't necessarily the um the conventionally sporty types or the most physically active and that's great that's a 
that, that demonstrates to us that we're moving in the right direction. We're, mm. we're, we're becoming more welcoming, more inclusive. But that's not going to happen unless we change our language um, and, and our, our, our visual language um, around how we're talking about the events that we run um, and, and who is welcome. Because if we don't do that, the perception will always be that of the traditional view that you have to conform to a certain size, shape, ethnicity, age, gender, and, and, and we won't make any progress at all. Thank you. And um, let's do one more question just quickly. And um, this question's just come in from Alison. Um, and her question is, with all the financial pressures on sport providers, especially local authorities, how do we ensure communities can t- continue to access facilities such as swimming pools and indoor sports centres? And um, maybe Hamid? Yeah, I think there's probably a role for, you know, um, sporting bodies uh, and organize and and you know charitable trusts like us. Uh, you know, our charitable trust, for example, d- donates and invests in in facilities across the country to support um, participation in sport. So, especially amongst underrepresented groups. So, I think um, you know the reality is we know we're in a very um, cash strapped society at the moment um post covid um there there isn't a huge amount of funding out there and we know you know uh, that there there will probably inevitably be some kind of reduction in access to facilities um so i i don't have the answer there i'm afraid but i think absolutely it's essential that we look to other sectors wherever possible outside of local authorities to understand what can they do to contribute towards keeping our society more physically active and, and happier and healthier. Um, and I think if, if we look, if we think outside the box on this, there's got to be investment from elsewhere um, that, that could support it. I think we've got an opportunity, haven't we, Hamid, around, you know, surely now more than ever, we understand the importance of um, health and wellbeing at a population level. You know, that if, if the last 18 months has taught us anything, it should be that. Um, yeah. And I think we need as a society and a government, whoever that government is, to um, to really ensure that we're putting the right investment in place to make sure that we're supporting the population to be as healthy and happy as, the, as they can possibly be. And the provision of um, sport, physical activity opportunities, whatever they might be, uh, has probably never been more important. Um, and if we're to genuinely improve the health and well-being of the country, um, despite the fact that, of course, you know there are there's there's, a, there's an economic uh, consequence or impact from COVID. Um, probably some of the smartest use um, of of our resources over the next period would be in, in investing in in sport and and sporting infrastructure because it's that if we get it right that will support the health and well-being of our communities in the future. Thank you so much. I think that's a brilliant way to end, actually. Um, we have come to 12 o'clock, so I'm going to have to uh, draw the discussion to a close. Um, but thanks again um, to all three of you for joining us and also to our audience for some brilliant questions um, coming through as well. Um, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, um, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or email us at inquiries um, at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Um, and like I said at the beginning, our dialogue and debates um, happen monthly um, at 11am on the first Wednesday of each month so it'd be great um, for you to join us us again. Um, Also before I say goodbye I'd just like to highlight um, like all charities Cumberland Lodge has um, 
had had some challenges and some difficult times as a result of the pandemic. And um, so, if you'd like to support our work, and um, you can make a small donation um, on our Just Giving page, and, and we'll put the link up to that after the webinar. Um, so that would be much appreciated. Um, and if not, um, please um, do follow our work um, and and uh, and keep up to date um, with other events that we've got going on, um, and and do stay engaged. Um, but thank you very much for joining, um, and thanks again to Mark, Russ, and Hamid, and our audience. Um, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Everybody.